The next Brand Growth Heroes episode is coming right up. But before you listen, just a quick reminder. If you or anyone you know is the smart founder of a fast scaling consumer goods brand and you'd like to join a cohort of 10 other founders to really hone your growth strategy, then check out the Growth Strategy Program on fionafitzconsulting.com forward slash online courses. Next cohort starts June 1st and we're taking bookings now. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Alex Smith is a consultant who offers strategic direction to help brands find uncontested market space away from competitors in order to step change their growth trajectory. In this episode, we explore how scaling brands should do this. We talk about blanding, not branding, and how brand purpose has now been hijacked by sustainability. Alex Smith, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you calling us in from? I'm calling in from Suffolk, although I was uh, back in London last week, which was a true novelty. But yeah, it's been pretty good to be out in the sticks for all this stuff. What was London like last week? I mean, I haven't been to London since the start of the pandemic. What's it like at the moment? Quite honestly, it was a bit depressed, I thought. Actually, because I was there a lot during, you know, lockdown one, lockdown two, all that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, things were closed and it was quiet. Mm -hmm. But you really felt still a pretty positive energy in the air. Okay. This time, it was not more quiet. In fact, maybe it was less quiet, but it felt just a bit more down than before. Right. Okay. Things are getting to people in a way that it they weren't, you know, a few months ago. But yeah, it's pretty uh, understandable. This last one has been particularly hard, I think. So listen, Alex, for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, you are a brand strategist. You've got your own consultancy called Basic Arts. And I came across you because I was Googling Blue Ocean and uncontested market space. And I came across your fabulous TED Talk which I loved. And then I signed up for your newsletter and your, your mini email course and kind of learned a little bit about you. So tell us, what is it that you do? Who are the clients that you've worked with that our listeners may be able to kind of recognise straight away and pin who you are? And let's have a talk about some of the things that you and I have been spending time over the last few months talking about, such as this idea of how to find uncontested market space, this idea of then everybody ending up looking slightly the same. And you'll go into that more detail. And I really want to look at this, your very strong idea on brand purpose. I know that's an awful lot to throw at you. There's just so much to say here. So over to you. (laughs) Sure, sure. Thanks. So yeah, like you said, I'm a strategist, which is unfortunately one of those ugly phrases, which is essentially meaningless. But what I do more particularly is, as you said, I try and help companies find and open up uncontested market space in their categories. Now, Obviously, what that means is, in principle, that you create a business which has got no direct competitors who are the only people who do what they do. And then you can obviously imagine all of the benefits that accrue from that, whether or not it's fast organic growth, not needing to compete on price, lowering the pressure on marketing spend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that sounds like a bit of an uncontested market space in consulting. So pretty impressive. You're living your belief system. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because it It kind of is because I think when people talk about strategy and you actually used the term earlier on brand strategist, which obviously leads one to think, oh, okay, it's about branding. 
And although that is a big part of it, that actually really isn't the whole story or the most important part. And when it comes to what I do, I think the crucial thing to put across is that what I'm looking at is sort of about adapting a business to take on that role in the market, but by doing it, by changing everything in the business simultaneously. Okay. So not just brand. No. And actually when they think about their business and when they try and develop it, people always break it down into sort of tranches, like Mm -hmm. brand is one tranche, Mm -hmm. product is another tranche. I don't know, distribution, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. is another tranche. And people are very comfortable looking at these things independently. Mm -hmm. And you'll find consultants or agencies, whatever it might be, who are experts in all of these things, and they can look at them. But what you don't get, which is what I do, is actually thinking about all of these things as a holistic unit and developing them all in concert. So essentially, to give you an idea of how this works, you know, if you were trying to claim a certain territory in the market, which your business is going to dominate, Mm -hmm. obviously the way to do that is that you actually have to deliver on the proposition that you're claiming to have. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly the way that a business delivers on a proposition is not just a function of any one thing. It's a function of the whole business as a unit. So obviously the product has to do what you're claiming it does. And then the brand has to communicate whatever that thing is and has to do it in a certain way. And all the different like moving parts, they have to come together in this harmonious way. And then that creates the business, which then goes out there and performs well or badly. And I do find that there are very few people who really think about businesses in this more holistic manner. To give you an example of this from some brands who I work with, I mean, in the world of like FMCG in the UK, Moju, who I know you spoke to Rich last week, this was one of the businesses who I worked with, Biotiful Dairy, the Kefir brand, Eat Natural, the cereal bars who were just sold to Ferrero, then Doisy and Dam, chocolate brand is another one. And to use that as a particular example, Doisy and Dam, essentially what we decided to do with them was to try and essentially claim the space in the market of ethical dark chocolate confectionery. And when I say confectionery here, I'm talking the world of Cadbury's as opposed to the world of like pure chocolate, like the green and blacks world, which is actually where the business originated. Now, if you think about if that's what you're going to do, if you want to be kind of like, it's a bit more complicated than this, but if you want to be basically the dark chocolate Cadbury's, which is kind of what Doisy and Dam are and is what they're kind of going after. In order to do that, not only do you have to have a brand which adheres to that market position, but you also have to have products that are going to deliver on that. Like the Smarties rather than the green and blacks, you know, wrapped up individual chocolates. It's the format which delivers on telling people what the occasion and the need state is that they need that product for. Is that what you mean? Yes, precisely. Format is just as important or if not more important than brand in that case. Yeah. Obviously, from a sales perspective, you're speaking to a different buyer. You're looking at a completely different distribution strategy. Now, if we just take those three parts there, let's say brand, the product slash product format and distribution strategy. Mm -hmm. In order for Doisy and Dam to become the business that they are trying to become, you have to work on those three things simultaneously and you have to do it underneath an overarching strategy. Mm -hmm. And so that overarching strategy and then the resultant changes to the different parts of the business, this is what I do. And I think this is the only way that you can create a truly coherent business, which really claims and owns and dominates a particular market space. And 
clearly there are a great many very successful businesses out there who haven't done this and who don't think this way. But it's extremely unusual, I think, to go through a process like that. But ultimately, it is, I think, a common factor that binds a lot of the sort of really aspirational, sexy brands, which everybody looks up to, you know, all of the usual suspects um, in various different categories. So I've got a dilemma here then, and this is not to put you on the spot, but actually to ask your help or advice on thinking this through. And I suppose I'm not looking for the answer to this, but how would you think this through? So take, for example, and this is something I've been struggling with over the last few weeks or months. Imagine you have a fabulous, healthier chocolate bar, right? Mm -hmm. Let's imagine that it's high in plant protein, it's plant-based, it's high in protein, and it was born originally in the protein bar area, Mm -hmm. okay? But it doesn't necessarily deliver as much protein as the protein bars because you've decided that it's going to be an indulgent protein bar. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So it's wrapped in chocolate and it's quite indulgent and it's a bit higher in sugar and lower in protein. So it doesn't necessarily tick the boxes for the protein bar people. So then you think, okay, well, in some stores, some of my independents are putting me beside the eat naturals of the world and they're putting me with healthy snacking. Mm -hmm. And that's all fine. But really where I'd like to be is besides the Mars and the Snickers of the world. Okay. And I have a product that is formulated. It could look that, and I could change the wrapping and I could change the brand positioning to be in around the Mars and the Snickers and be in that kind of confectionery count line market space. And I would be the only plant-based high protein bar there. Right. How do you decide whether that is a move that you can make safely or whether that is a move that's way too big and dangerous to make? I mean, because for a small player, that's a pretty big move to go into up against the big guys. I suppose the point I'm making is you might be going into an uncontested market space, but the feeling might be that you'd have to have an awful lot of resources to help you win there. What would you be thinking through? This might not be a direct answer to your question, but you do touch on something I think is very interesting, which is that a lot of new, trendy FMCG brands, they are all very much of a type with each other, and they do all tend to compete with each other. And they do tend to leave a lot of the big, massive legacy brands kind of untroubled and untouched. I saw, I was looking for a bit of research about something at the list the other day, the grocer's top 100 value selling food products in the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe three of the top 100 were what you would call in some sense. Insurgent brands. Insurgent brands. Yeah. Long in the tooth insurgent brands like Innocent, for example, like, you know, Innocent was about as sort of cool and challenger as it got. You know, most of them are things like yeah. pot noodle and frosties and stuff like that. Right. I know it's shocking. And the reason that I think a lot of this happens uh, to a to a greater or lesser degree is because of the uh, it's actually I was about to say the cowardice but actually isn't cowardice it's more the snobbishness of founders I think actually rather than fear itself who don't want to go up against brands and categories design their products for audiences who aren't like them oh. and who aren't who aren't discerning, who don't reflect their values and so on. Like a lot of these like big product categories, like the ones you're describing, you know, like the world of Mars bars, for example. The reason that these are the same brands still selling there for years and years, I think to a large degree is because nobody is uh, willing to put themselves down into the gutter to speak in order to challenge them because everybody wants to make a product which is like 
the most environmentally friendly, the most ethical, the most millennial, to use that dirty word, and ticking all of those other kind of boxes, which are somewhat cliche in the startup space, nobody ever thinks that they could actually make a much, much bigger impact if they were to make a dent on those old legacy categories. Going back to your question, a part of that is probably because people think, oh, how could I possibly compete with brands with those resources? And that's fine. There's an element of that. But I actually think a much bigger part of it is in a way a kind of a refusal to sort of sacrifice perhaps the founder's principles by making something which is more sort of... Mass appeal. Mass appeal, yes, and friendly for the everyday consumer. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing, isn't it? This finding this balance between a product that has the type of ingredients that you would want to put inside your body or you'd want to put inside your kids' bodies or that you really adore eating. The cost of that product to produce is going to price you out of many mass market markets, really. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of founders in this group of young startup brands find themselves in all the time. Plus, on top of the fact that they've got, you know, expensive ingredients, they also have small runs. And if you've got small runs, even if your ingredients are relatively averagely priced, your product cost is going to be much more expensive. But back to the idea of if I could sit in three different areas, how do you go about choosing where to compete? Mm -hmm. And I'm not asking for like an answer on that, but what are the considerations? So a huge part of it depends on the how mature the branding question is. Okay. Now, essentially, most of the projects I do are with brands who have already had traction and who have already, you know, in the case of, let's say, uh, grocery, you know, are already listed in a couple of the major malts, that type of thing. So they know that something is working. Okay. And in that case, the strategic exercise, strategy for me, for the most part, for businesses should be a backwards looking exercise. It's an exercise in looking at, okay, what is this thing that we have inadvertently created here? You analyze the business, you sort of ask the business to tell you what it is, uh, whatever that is, whether it's in line with your original intentions or not, you lean into it. So it's very similar process to, you've probably heard of product market fit in the tech world. Yeah, It's just product market fit exists in every single category. You know, you create that initial rough version of the brand, you put it out there in the world, you don't know what's going to happen. You watch to see where it goes, you learn from it, and eventually it clicks and you're like, oh, right, okay, this is the thing I've created. And then you double down on it and off you go. And then you tweak it. Yeah. But that, of course, that only applies for businesses who have already achieved traction, who have proved that they're doing something of value. So this hypothetical brand that you're talking about, if this was already in a couple of the malts, for example, mm -hmm. you should be able to learn enough from the performance of the business. For example, which SKUs have worked, which SKUs have failed, which formats have worked, which formats have failed, which particular type of retailer or which particular channel do we perform well in which particular channel do we perform badly in it what type of person is buying the product etc cetera, etc cetera. all of these things are clues which will tell you what the business really is and you need to figure that out okay. and then that should effectively answer the question for you and you'll be like of course you know it should be x if you're a brand new product you can't do that you have to be much much more speculative but you could test each of those things, couldn't you? You could see your launch as a beta launch rather than seeing your launch as that's it, we're out there now, this has to work. You could see this is, and this is what I always say to clients is, you know, don't put that pressure on yourself. If you can manage it, test your three 
or your two different channel stroke market opportunities by placing your product with a particular buyer in a particular channel on a particular shelf and seeing how it goes, if you have that luxury. Um, yeah. But usually you do because the volumes that you're going to be committing to up front at the beginning in terms of what most people can afford to pay for in terms of runs would allow you to do those small tests, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I would certainly always suggest exactly as you say, for a sort of young sort of startup-y type brand, do as many different flavors as you can, do as many different packaging formats as you can, and get into as many different retail channels as you can, including ones that you, on the face of it, don't think are right or which you have no interest in because you're in a process of trying to generate data which will tell you the way the business is going to go. And, mm. and you have to go into the process assuming that you know absolutely nothing and every single hypothesis you have is completely wrong. <laughs> nice. Now, of course, this is a tricky balance to strike because at the same time, if you want to maximize your chances of being successful, you do need to have a sort of focus, focus and proposition, mm -hmm. even if you're going to ditch it eventually. And so going back to the Doisy and Dam example, like their original hypothesis for that business was completely wrong. They were basically, their idea was superfood chocolate. You know, superfood chocolate, it didn't work, it doesn't work. But what it did enable them to do was to create something which seemed vaguely interesting, something which seemed vaguely coherent, which then gave them a platform from which to experiment. So you do need to begin with that. And of course, now they've ended up in a place that's completely different. So they're not superfood chocolate. What are they now then? I haven't yet had the opportunity to taste them. I mean, I know they're beautiful coloured packaging. It's really like fabulously standout and that they're in different formats. But what are they? What do they represent? Are they fun, playful premium chocolate? Sustainable premium? To the consumer, there isn't a kind of a straightforward like line like superfood chocolate. But what they essentially have done is they have exported all of the kind of values and attributes which are completely standard in the block chocolate world, in the green and blacks world, which is dark chocolate, ethical, lower sugar, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they've taken it to the confectionery world, Cadbury's and Mars, where all of those things, amazingly- Are not standard. Not standard. They effectively don't exist at all. You know, it was mind blowing, you know, when we were doing the work, when you realize that, you know, dark chocolate was in double digit growth. I think milk chocolate was maybe in slight decline. So this is just in the world of block chocolate. And you realize that, well, so far, nobody is actually doing the kind of the Cadbury's confectionery treatment yes. to, yeah. to, to quality dark chocolate. So if I'm a consumer who likes dark chocolate, of which there are loads and they're a growing group, but maybe I also like to have things in interesting formats, colors, you know, something that's a bit more fun to eat mm -hmm. than a plain bit of chocolate. So, you know, I like things like Smarties, Maltesers, whatever it might be. Playful experience. Playful type stuff this is a very obvious thing to exist. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. So imagine you're a founder then in today's food and beverage industry and you're saying to yourself, you know, this makes sense to me. I'm going to take this on. I'm going to look for some uncontested market space and I'm going to find that balance between being in a part of the market where there's no one like me playing, but I'm also clever enough and savvy enough to know that I need to be in a category that has got really high footfall, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I need to be in a mass market category, basically. 
So that means that I'm going to take my product, my proposition, I'm going to tweak it or evolve it so that it answers the same needs as, say, a Mars or a Cadbury's, right? But because I am a startup and I don't have the size of runs, right, for my product and I have much better quality ingredients, I'm going to end up with an RSP, which is much higher compared to your Mars or your Snickers. Mm -hmm. Are people willing to pay such a premium? For are some enough people should be the question willing to play a premium? So, for example, with Doisy and Dam, I don't know that business very well, and I'm not asking you to share secrets. But mm-hmm. there obviously were, or you obviously guys together did consider that there would be enough people willing to pay extra. And I'm sure it's more than a twenty percent premium versus Cadbury's. Mm. So, how do you make that decision and take that risk? So, I mean, there are quite a few different factors in there. I mean. The first, and so none of these are particularly an answer to the Doisy and Dan one, but just about the general question overall. Okay, so firstly, the trend of premiumization, which is happening all across the supermarket, is of course real and is of course something which new brands can exploit. And, you know, in a lot of categories haven't been successfully premiumized. And when I say premiumized, of course, you know, we've got to recognize that, you know, premium can also be mass. So classic examples of mass premium brands are Innocent and Ben and Jerry's, both of whom we might even say kind of like locked in a new normal price for their categories. So I don't think that people actually look at something like Ben and Jerry's now as being an outrageously expensive product. But if we were to compare it to something like, you know, whatever the ice cream market was looking like in the 90s, then when it was all sort of walls, soft scoop and stuff like that, then it was a really, really massive change. So that type of mass premium idea, I think, is the most appropriate thing for a lot of these new startups to have. Now, as you say, there is a limit, generally speaking, to how much more expensive you can be. And yeah, the 20% thing, I mean, I've never sort of like put a particular number to it, but that does sound about right. And obviously in every category, you can kind of do a sniff test. I think, you know, you can go in there and you can look at the other products on shelf and you can just say, well, I can imagine that a product that cost X is kind of acceptable and a product that costs Y is kind of unacceptable. But then of course, that is purely for a product, which is just essentially a posh version of what you're replacing. And There are exceptions, but for the most part, just being a posh version of the status quo, that is not a meaningful proposition. I spend a lot of time talking to founders about how the number one error that they all make is trying to build their brands and propositions around the idea of being better, quote unquote, than the other businesses in their category. Better is this poisonous word, which has sunk many, many companies. You could never, ever be trying to be better than your competitors. But so many founders are trying to be better, better ingredients, better for you, better for the planet. So why is that so wrong? Because basically the market doesn't recognize better. The market only recognizes different. If you have two brands who essentially have the same proposition, but one of them is claiming to be sort of offering it 5% more than the other one, As far as the man on the street is concerned, those are basically the same brands. And that's where you do start getting into these sort of like brutal competitive battles over price, marketing and stuff like that. You have to be offering something, a value to the market, which nobody else is offering. Now, sometimes your betterness, if you like, could be so extreme that it does actually represent not only a difference in degree, but a difference in kind. But my point is, is that if you are just not a posh version of the incumbent, But if you are actually delivering a genuinely new proposition to the category, then to a degree that completely breaks the kind of like the pricing structure. So classic example of this, you know, I read the other day, which I still can't quite believe, but I think it's correct, that Grenade's Carb Killer is the number two confectionery product 
in the UK, not the number, I mean, obviously it's the number one protein bar, but no, I mean the number two confectionery product, i.e. you were talking about Mars bars and stuff like that. Now that's what, I'm not sure, three times the cost of a Mars bar, but the consumer is using it in place of a Mars bar and it does to all intents and purposes occupy the same category as a Mars bar, but it's totally broken understandings of what that category is. Sure. And it's totally broken. The price frame. The price bound. Now, obviously, in that particular case, it's about sort of having an extreme degree of functionality. So it's not all about functionality. You could do this in various different ways. Functionality is one example. So another very important lesson, I think, for founders to take on, particularly in the supermarket world, is you need to be thinking of what I call true categories as opposed to supermarket categories. Now, supermarket category is obviously the categories that, you know, delineated by buyers and the data that supermarkets give you. And, and aisles. And aisles and all of that. But those barely represent categories as they exist in consumers' minds, which are much more fluid things and where, like, they actually will be comparing two brands that sit, sure. you know, five aisles apart yeah. in the supermarket. It's about need states and occasion, isn't it, in consumers' minds? Exactly. And so another trick that you can do regarding the price is, you know, you might be thinking about, you know, well, who are you anchoring yourself to? You talked about Moju earlier on. You know, Moju is a very expensive product and they're really flying. Mm -hmm. But a Moju shot is not anchored to a bottle of orange juice, even though they're both, quote unquote, made out of juice. Mm -hmm. You know, a Moju shot is anchored to something like, depending on which shot it is, maybe an espresso or a Barocca or a Red Bull, or I don't know. So Brilliant. These products that exist in different categories. So like when people go up and they see, oh, look at the price per milliliter of a Moju shot versus a Tropicana grab-and-go orange juice, yeah. it's a completely false equivalence. So there is a hell of a lot more flexibility for price than I think when people just say, oh, I want to attack so-and-so mass market brand, but I can't compete with them on price. Yeah, It's the least of the worries to some degree. Okay. And that's really interesting. And it's actually something I'm going to be doing an episode on with a friend of mine who is a market research scientist in Dublin. And he taught me all about the fact that consumers and shoppers make their decisions in a frame and that every category has price bands and if you can mess with the frame of reference and often doing that by offering something totally different, that all of a sudden that's how you disrupt the category. And, and so that's a really interesting point. And this is fascinating. I'm really learning a lot here. But I really want to talk about this idea of blanding that you spoke to me about before. And then I really do want to talk about this other idea of that purpose is being misunderstood and it's actually ending up being a negative thing for lots of scaling brands right now. So let's start with the blanding piece. What is blanding and what do we need to be afraid of? So earlier on, I mentioned this idea that a lot of founders are kind of afraid or too snobbish to branch out of making products for people like them, which is, of course, a very small portion of the market. And this means that, you know, a lot of these startup brands, you know, they kind of look and feel the same. And this is something I've been talking about for a long time. And then I was delighted then when I actually saw that there was an article in Bloomberg, which took on this idea, gave it a name, Blanding, and started to sort of like codify the entire world around it. I encourage you to look up the article. It's really it's really great. Um, if you just search okay. Bloomberg Blanding, you'll find it. I'll put a link to it in the podcast episode notes. Great. And so, yeah, it's just this way that because all, not all, but most new startup brands 
have very similar propositions, very similar values. They belong to a very similar kind of cultural space. They're made for very similar type of people. They are all essentially very similar in general. And what this results in is them essentially clustering their market, leaving a lot of fruit unpicked on the tree, so to speak. White space. Yep. And the great irony of it is, as the guy actually references in the article, is that because all of these brands, they like to think of themselves as disruptive, the kind of look and feel of what is disruptive has become a cliche in and of itself. Okay. So the more disruptive they try to be, the more samey they actually are. The first example of that, sorry to jump across you, is probably the Innocent Speak. Do you remember back in the day when Innocent came out first and they were the first to do the kind of funny chatting on pack and then everybody did it. And then that was the thing that everyone's been doing for 15 years and people have stopped doing it now. But that was probably an early example of blanding, wasn't it? People group think and everybody following, well, that's what, if I'm an insurgent brand, that's what I need to do. Exactly. Oh, that is so true. And, and of course, like the irony is then that speaking of Grenade, it would be fair to, you could probably make a case to say that Grenade is the most genuinely disruptive brand in the UK supermarkets in the past 10 years. And they look like some sort of like lads mag 1990s cliche. Yeah. Because ironically, what is disruptive is obviously the opposite of what has come to be seen as disruptive. It's kind of gone full circle in that way. So yeah, you do have this problem for all startup brands, which is that by following this kind of template and classic examples of the template, they're not FMCG, but brands like Casper mattresses, Harry's Shave, you know, these are real kind of like prototypical blands. You actually really damage your ability to stand out or to disrupt, yeah. to deliver new value to the market. You're copying without even realizing. And I wonder as well, you know, the stronger the community of startups that you are part of, the closer you are to the other brands in your community and the more groupthink can come into the situation and the more you're looking at everybody else's brands and the colour palettes they're using. And and that's an interesting one as well, because there's nothing more beautiful than a really, really strong community of entrepreneurs, right? Or scaling brands. Mm -hmm. But as long as you're aware that that groupthink can happen and that you can be influenced by all of these other brands and that you don't lose sight of all the white space out there that we've talked about earlier on in this episode, then you get the best of both worlds, don't you? The best of the community and all the help that you get but at the same time, you're not losing sight of, you don't want to become the same as everybody else, do you? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. I do think that probably the prevalence of blanding owes a lot to how strong the community of founders has become, which as you say, in general, is an excellent thing. Yeah. But yeah, it does have this one significant drawback. And I did a presentation about this the other day. And the problem is, is that I actually genuinely believe that even if you're aware of this phenomenon, I think it's almost impossible to resist it mm -hmm. because when you're doing, it's about more than design and branding, right? But that's the most obvious area of it. So let's say you're doing a rebrand and you're looking at the design options. You'll see one and you'll be like, oh, love that. That's it. And you'll just be so viscerally drawn to it. But probably the reason that you're being drawn to it is because it looks like everything that you see all the time. So you just have that feeling of comfort with it and it sucks you in. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that you can really overcome that. I don't believe you can. But it's about being aware of our cognitive biases as humans, isn't it, as well? Because there's so many cognitive biases that we're not aware of. So what's that conformism, that one, I think it is, mm -hmm. where you like, we feel more comfortable if something conforms. Absolutely. But my hypothesis is, is that even being aware, you still can't quite 
break free from it. So what one technique, which I think is quite interesting, just to throw out a little kind of thing that I've been sort of toying with, is it might be a good idea to embrace your inbuilt drive to copy things. Mm -hmm. And the way that you sort of weaponize that and stop it from damaging you and make it help you is, yes, copy your heart out, but copy brands from completely different categories to yourself. So very classic examples would be, you know, the way that Lush copies fresh fruit and veg and the whole aesthetic around that kind of industry or the way that vitamin water back in the day copied pharmaceuticals and kind of built their whole brand around sure. pharmaceuticals. Like if you can't avoid copying, which I don't believe you can, then at least make sure you copy from someone who in no way overlaps with your brand and use the codes. Use the codes, yeah. That those brands have created to your advantage. Yeah, to communicate the benefits and the value that you're offering to your consumer. So as part of all of this, you know, brands positioning in similar ways, one of the big things that brands use to position on at the moment is purpose. And purpose has come to mean sustainability and good to people, the planet um, and a balance with profit. You have something to say quite strongly on this, don't you? Which I think is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, well... It is definitely related to all of that blending stuff because clearly one of the characteristics of all of this kind of wave of new school brands is their desire to be quote unquote purposeful. Mm -hmm. And that meaning all these different sort of type flavors of social good, which come underneath that umbrella. Now, to be clear, obviously it's not only fine, but good and admirable to be as kind of uh, responsible as you can be. But you need to recognize that there's a big difference between being responsible and good, so to speak, in your operations as a method of just running the business and using that as your method of positioning yourself and your value proposition. A value proposition is about the value that your product, your business delivers to the market. It's a very market-oriented thing. Now, occasionally, there are businesses out there whose value proposition is actually also something sort of noble and purposeful. So someone like the body shop, you know, classic example, their value proposition is the same yeah. as their kind of brand purpose, if you like. Like, or Tony's Chuckle Only, one of my favorites. Yeah, although actually it's a whole rabbit hole, but I believe that the vast majority of people who love Tony's have got absolutely zero idea of their ethical side of their business. They like it because it's twice as thick as other products, tastes great, has amazing packaging, but that's a hypothesis and that's a side point. But yes, if people are certainly buying it for the reasons they want them to buy it, then that would also be an example. Okay. But clearly for the most part, like in every market, there can probably only be one or two brands who really build themselves on claiming that sort of ethical territory. Mm -hmm. And once that ethical territory has been claimed, basically, you probably can't take it from them. That's kind of like a box that has been ticked in the market. And so when you're bringing your product out there, you need to think purely in terms of the value that you are bringing to consumers in that market. And if consumers can already get the purposeful ethical value, then you are not going to have a very good time if you simply try to copy that. It's just another way of commodifying your brand. You can commodify yourself around purposeful positions. And I think we're seeing an awful lot of that. And actually in the world of FMCG, it's even worse because frankly, a lot of categories in the supermarket, rightly or wrongly, the consumer just simply doesn't respond 
to those type of messages. Um, they only really work in categories where there is a sort of a recognized enemy. So it works for Oatly because they have the enemy of milk. You know, it works for, oh, I don't know, Tesla, and there's no, no, it's not FMCG because they have the enemy of internal combustion engine. If you try and bring out a sustainable cereal, for sake of argument, the consumer doesn't perceive there to be a problem with the status quo okay. there. So what you essentially have in your hands is a very weak value proposition, even in that case, actually, if you're the only one doing it. So what I think most founders essentially need to recognize is that all the stuff which is coming underneath the banner of purpose is all stuff that they should be doing, but they should be doing it just because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to sell product. For the most part, it isn't going to sell product. It's a under-the-fold background piece of information that if a consumer happens to have a look, they'll be like, oh, that's nice, but it's not actually the thing that's going to propel okay. growth. Okay. Wow. I mean, that's just fascinating. I totally see where you're coming from on that. It would be great. You know what would be great, Alex, if you had a couple of million quid to actually test all of these fabulous hypotheses, which, you know, I bet if there was some econometric testing behind a lot of the stuff you've said, you'd have empirical proof that you're actually right on a lot of it. Well, I mean, I, I do think that there is empirical testing happening all the time because I think you see it with the brands that are failing and brands that are flying. Well, there we go. You know, I think you can often, all of these things are fundamentally based on observation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of what's working and what's not working. Yeah, they're just based on observation of the market. And, you know, the whole purpose thing, of course, the idea that purposeful brands succeed and sell better and all that type of thing, that in itself was based on a strong observation in the past. But really what was happening there was that there was a period of time when these sort of ethical propositions were new and fresh. Yeah. And brands who came along and absolutely nailed it, brands like Patagonia and so on, they then flew and everyone said, oh, wow, why is Patagonia doing so well? Oh, well, they're doing so well because they're ethical. No, no, no. Patagonia are doing so well because they had a fantastic proposition, which they executed in an incredibly aggressive and forceful way. The fact that they are ethical is neither here nor there. Red Bull also has a fantastic proposition executed in an incredibly aggressive way. There's nothing ethical about it. But they are both, in my way of thinking, very, very purposeful brands. They are both brands who have got very powerful way of delivering value, which they push to really extreme degrees. The ethical side is complete red herring. Okay. And I think that that'll probably be very divisive for listeners out there. But, you know, you stand strongly in that. I would probably caveat that by saying it's, as we've said before on other calls, it has become a hygiene factor. Mm -hmm. If you're not the only brand in the market, or the first brand in the market positioning on it really strongly, then it's something that you need to do in order to satisfy today's consumer. But it's not the first thing they're going to choose you on. They're going to choose you on how you add value to a need state or an occasion in their lives better than anything else out there. I mean, Red Bull, I don't know at all, but I dare say that Red Bull has got an incredibly high amount of social diligence going on under the surface in that business, because what big brand these days can get away without that? But the thing is, as a consumer, you don't know and you don't care, because that's not what that particular business is about. So they should be doing it. And maybe some consumers, they would look into it because they do care and they would find it and they would be reassured by that. But it's not the mass, the mass part of that business. Businesses can be about different things. Businesses should be about different things. You know, are we going to enter this world where every single brand 
is the same bloody brand just repeated again and again because that's the quote unquote right thing to do. No, you should be doing all the right things under the hood. But what your business is about that should be as diverse as possible. Well, look, on that note, Alex, that is just a great way to finish. Thank you so much for all of that today. Um, it's been a fabulous conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing all that with us. I think you'll probably get a lot of inboxes on LinkedIn after this. I hope so. Yeah, yeah I hope so, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, I strongly urge everybody to sign up for your newsletter. They can find that on basicarts.org. Basicarts.org, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. There's the little sign up box right there. Yeah, the sign up box. Okay. Um, Because it's fabulous. And yeah, we will talk soon. And thank you so much for all of your insights and expertise. Thanks very much for inviting me on. 